Are you a committed Christian? Or have you become a less than dedicated disciple? Are you devoted to your devotional life with the Lord? Or is your quiet time with Christ quickly forgotten? You know, whenever things get just too busy. When it comes to the time we spend serving our Savior, do we treat our commitment as a primary priority? Or do we see our service as an extracurricular activity, sort of like a volunteer who helps out at a nonprofit organization? What about our Christian congregation? Are we committed to our fellowship of faith? Or are we allowing the, the, the secular things of this world to get in the way of our Christian commitment? Simply put, are we truly committed Christians or have we become believers who are just too busy for Jesus? With all of these questions in mind, we're going to spend our time today considering what it means to be a committed Christian. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that committed Christians are believers who stand firmly. Secondly, we'll consider how committed Christians are believers who strive fervently. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how committed Christians are believers who struggle faithfully. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the original recipients to become committed Christians. And as we make our way to the, to the first chapter of Philippians, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I should take a moment to remind you that Paul began this book by encouraging the Christians there at the church in Philippi to become those believers who are abounding in the love of the Lord. Not only that, but he also encouraged them to approve the things that are excellent so that they might become sincere saints who are without offense and until the day of Christ. And with this as the goal, Paul then moves forward to to present them with the discipleship directives that we need so that uh, Christians might become committed to Christ. And with that, I want to begin here in Philippians chapter 1. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 27. Here Paul declares, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Here in our text today, we find Paul, he's providing the Christians there in Philippi with the instructions that they needed so that they might understand how Christians ought to conduct themselves while we're still here in this wicked world. And just to be clear, when we talk about how Christians should conduct themselves, well, I want to take a moment to point out that the word conduct found there in verse 27, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who comport to a code of conduct. The same Greek words used of law-abiding citizens who were living according to the statutes of their political state 
or the legislative authority of their government. And, and you might be interested to also know here, this word that's rendered conduct, it's also derived from the Greek word politeis. And politeis is a Greek word. It's the basis of our English word politics. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. I'm talking about religion and politics in the same sermon. Now, listen, I realize that there are many believers who have been duped into thinking that Christians should simply avoid politics altogether. I've even had people confront me and tell me, you're too political. You've got to stop talking about politics. So, so, so it's wrong for pastors to talk about politics? That sounds very political. Listen, I realize our citizenship is in heaven. And, and you need to realize this also. Our citizenship is in heaven, and yet we must not fail to realize that Christians here on the earth have a dual citizenship. We have citizenship in heaven, and we have citizenship here on earth. And with that being the case, Christians have been called to become law-abiding citizens during the time we spend here on earth. Not only that, but listen, the Christians who live in a country where the citizens are able to take part in the political process ought to prayerfully be looking for Christian leaders who will then come in and legislate biblical morality. Now, I get it. A whole lot of Christians are like, well, I don't think Christians ought to you know, legislate biblical morality. Okay, so then who should? Someone's going to legislate morality. So who better than a Christian? I like the way that America's founding father, John Jay, put it when he declared, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, John Jay was the original chief justice of our Supreme Court, and he's saying, hey, Christian, you need to seek out and vote for Christian leaders. We need to select and prefer Christians to become the leaders who legislate our laws because if Christians aren't legislating morality, someone else is going to. And chances are they have a, a form of morality that does not line up with the scriptures. Listen, if the church sits back and allows unbelievers to become our leaders, then we will end up with laws that fail to line up with biblical morality. And oh, wait, what's that? Too late. Here we are. Aborting babies, legal. That's right. And, and I can start running down a list of things that are legal but that do not line up with the scriptures. Why? Because so many of the church set back and allowed the world to step in to lead this nation. We need to step back up. We need to realize that when it comes to politics, the people who should be at the tip of the spear here in America should be Christians. Christians who want to legislate biblical morality. And at the same time, listen, our conduct should be according to the law. But listen, I'm re referring now to a, an even higher law because remember, we're citizens of heaven first. And so our conduct ought to be in line with the agape love of the Lord, regardless of our rulers and, and regardless of how many unbiblical laws they pass. 
Christian, don't tell me that you're doing something that is immoral because here in America it's legal. They can legalize immorality all day long. You're supposed to still conduct yourselves according to a higher law, the law of the Lord's love. Let's consider again how Paul puts it here in our text today. Look with me again at verse 27. There he declares, let your conduct be worthy of the Constitution of the United States. Oh, wait, nope. It's not what it says. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is greater than our Constitution. I love our Constitution. And I believe that our Constitution is reflective of biblical truth, and yet there's a higher law. It's the law that, the, that is based in the Lord's love, and so we should conduct ourselves accordingly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians have been called to become citizens who abide by the code of conduct, which is based on our commitment to Christ Jesus. We've not only been called to become law-abiding citizens who are obeying the laws of the nation, but we've been called to become believers who are living above reproach according to the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered the beginning of verse 27. They put it like this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. From this we can see that earthbound believers, well, we have a dual citizenship status. And while it's true that we're citizens of the nation in which we live, it's also true that we are citizens of our Savior's heavenly kingdom. And what this also means then is that those who trust in Jesus Christ have actually become ambassadors of heaven. As such, we've been called to represent the King of Kings in the way we conduct ourselves here in our country. This was precisely the point that Paul uh, makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, It's verses 18 through 20 where Paul declares, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Christian, listen, we are here to serve as ambassadors of our king. And as such, we ought to conduct ourselves in accordance with the laws of our country now. But but, but listen, at the same time, we are to conduct ourselves in a way that properly represents the king of kings who has called us to accomplish this ministry of reconciliation or what we might call the Great Commission. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to realize that Christians have not only been called to become law-abiding citizens, we ought to be the best citizens in the world, right? And yet our king has called every Christian to a higher calling, which is also to then accomplish the Great Commission. So yeah, let's obey the laws of the land. Let's be law-abiding citizens that uh, are living in line with the word of God as we then accomplish the higher calling of the Great Commission. And I want to consider how Paul puts it back in Philippians chapter 1. 
It's here in verse 27 where he goes on to declare this. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now here in the second half of this verse, we find Paul, he's continuing to describe the way that Christians ought to conduct themselves while we're here in this world. And just to be clear, Paul encouraged the Christians there in Philippi to stand fast in one spirit. Now, before you think that standing fast is really just another way to say running, it's not. You know, that's what I thought when I was a kid, that, you know, running is just standing fast. But that's not what we're talking about. According to Thayer, that phrase, stand fast, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who persist and persevere. They're standing strong on their convictions. They're, They're standing firm in their beliefs. And in a Christian context, this word was used to describe the disciples who persevered in godliness and righteousness. They weren't quickly moved from the stance they were taking with Christ Jesus. And what this means is that Christians should consistently conduct themselves. Not that we should conduct ourselves as best as possible, but consistently conduct ourselves in a way that reflects the righteousness of our Redeemer. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that the Apostle Peter presented similar instructions in his first epistle. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of 1 Peter I just want to take a moment to point out that it's not uncommon for Christians here in the 21st century to point to the wicked ways of this world as a moral standard for how we can conduct ourselves as well. It's tragic to see so many Christians using the world as the standard. Well, look how evil they are. I'm not doing that. I'm not going that far. If you use the world as your gauge and the world continues to get worse and worse and worse, guess what you're doing? Getting worse and worse and worse, just not as bad as them. The world is not our standard. The Lord Jesus didn't say, well, just, you know, as long as you're not as bad as the world, then you're doing okay, right? Wrong. And it's sad that that so many Christians now conduct themselves in a carnal way rather than becoming those believers who are submitting themselves to the king of kings so that we can conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to him. With this in mind, I want to consider the instructions that the apostle Peter presented here in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse 11. Here Peter declares, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, we're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. Remember, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, 
you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter, he's reminding his readers that yes, we have liberty in the Lord. Yeah, we've been set free in the Lord. And while it's true that we've been set free from the condemnation of the law, it's also true that every believer has been called to serve our Savior by abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, this is not liberty so that you can continue living in sin. This is liberty that sets you free from the fallen flesh so that we can abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so now it's our calling to conduct ourselves in a way that is in accordance with our our king's commands. Peter encouraged us to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable so that we might silence the accusations of those who are looking for something to accuse us of. You know, if somebody accuses you of some sort of sin the people who hear the accusation ought to just be able to say, are you kidding me? That, that, that person is living in a way that's honorable. No one's going to believe the accusation. Why? Because your lifestyle disproves them. That's how we ought to be living. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to remember that this is God's will to do good. Again, I realize many Christians want to know what God's will is. If I just knew what God's will was, I would do it. Well, here it is. Look with me again. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. It's beginning at verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Rather than doing whatever we feel like doing, it's God's will for us to do what is good. By whose definition? Yours? The world's? No. By God's definition of what is good. Rather than following the carnal trends of this wicked world, it's God's will for us to do what is good, what is righteous. And listen, even if our legislatures legalize the depraved desires of sinful people, it's still God's will for us to do what is good. They can pass laws all day long that, that legalize what is immoral. Does that mean Christians can do that thing now? No, of course not. Because it's God's will for us to do what is good using our liberty for the right reasons as bondservants of God and not as a cloak for vice. The church is filled with nominal Christians who are engaging in all sorts of, 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 of well, I would just say sinful activities, things that would be called vice, and they're saying, well, I, I have liberty. I have liberty. Listen, I had liberty to do those things before I became a Christian. I had liberty to live in those ways before I became a believer. Why would I then turn around and say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I now have liberty to engage in these things that we call vice. 
It makes no sense. Our liberty sets us free from the vice. Our liberty sets us free from the snares of Satan. And with that being the case, we ought to persevere in godliness and righteousness as we stand firmly in our faith. We need to stand fast and stand firm in, in, the, in, in, in the convictions that the Lord gives us from his word so that we might conduct ourselves in a way that brings glory to our king. Simply put, committed Christians stand firmly as we conduct ourselves in a way that honors Christ Jesus, our king. And not only that, but committed Christians will also strive fervently as we serve our Savior. With this as our focus, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's Encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to strive together with one mind. I want to back up and start once again at verse 27. Here again, Paul declares, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, here in the third and final portion of this verse, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to keep striving, to not just start striving, but to keep striving. And just to be clear, that word strive, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who labor together. In other words, Paul wasn't calling them to stand alone. He wasn't saying, hey, stand fast in one spirit, and by one spirit, I mean your one spirit, by yourself, stay home, and try to, try to work it out best you can by yourself. No. It's stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. We are to strive together, or in other words, labor together, but with one mind. And whose mind is in charge? Well, it's the mind of Christ. We are to strive together together according to the mind of Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English, they render uh, verse 27 in this way. Let your behavior do credit to the good news of Christ, so that if I come and see you, or if I am away from you, I may have news of you that you are strong in one spirit, working together with one soul for the faith of the good news. We are to work together, and, and in order to further grasp you know, what he means by working together, uh, well, it might interest you to note that the same Greek word that is translated strive, it's also used of those who are fighting together towards the same goal, like a football team, you know, working together, striving together, fighting to get the ball across the goal line, or, or a military that is working together striving for the same goal. And with all this in mind, I want to consider how the, the scholars who created the New Living Translation render the Greek of, uh, of the third uh, section of verse 27. They put it like this, I know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. Fighting together for the faith. Paul was commending the Christians there at the church in Philippi. He was commending them for the way they were fighting together, fighting the good fight of faith. Just to be clear, listen, they weren't literally going out and picking fights with people. 
That's not what we're called to do. We aren't called to go into the marketplace and pick fist fights with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. No, we aren't fighting against humans who are rejecting the faith. No, instead, our battle is against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our battle is against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And what this means then is that every Christian has been enlisted into the Lord's army and given the sword of the Spirit so that we can wage this war against this enemy. To further prove my point, I want to consider the way that Paul explains it in his second letter to Timothy. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that Every unbeliever currently is caught in the satanic snares that you know, have, have uh, kept them from moving forward into a, a place of faith. Uh, unbelievers are caught in, in a satanic snare and they've been taken captive by the devil so that they might do the will of our enemy, our adversary. And in contrast to this, Christians have been set free from the snare of Satan. And in that moment of being set free by faith in Jesus Christ, we were enlisted into the Lord's army. Christian, did you know that? That at the moment of your conversion, you were enlisted into the Lord's army. And for the purpose of wielding the sword of the Spirit as we preach the gospel of grace, which are the keys that help set the captives free. In order to make my case, let's consider the way that Paul explained it here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to understand that born-again believers have been enlisted in the Lord's army. And much like the soldier who is committed to the orders of their commanding officer, Christians have been called to become spiritual soldiers who are completely committed to our commander, Christ Jesus. We are called to become spiritual soldiers who are completely committed to the orders of our commander, Jesus Christ. And in this way, we become those believers who are then able to fight the good fight of faith as we take the sword of the Spirit and use it to wage war against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In order to further grasp this commitment that we ought to have to our commander-in-chief, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 1. I want to take a closer look at verse 27. Here again, Paul declares, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for, notice, the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Listen, the Christians who strive together with one mind 
are fervently fighting for the faith of the gospel. When we gather together and, and, and join together to stand together and to strive together, it's for the faith. We're fighting the good fight of faith. In other words, we've been called to earnestly contend for the Christian faith, as Jude put it. We've been called to earnestly contend for the Christian faith by presenting every unbeliever with a reasonable defense for the gospel of grace. And as we preach the gospel of grace, listen, we're, we're actively helping unbelievers who are POWs, prisoners of war. We're helping them to escape the bondage of their own unbelief. It's the gospel message of grace that unlocks the cage in which, uh, and the snare in, in which they're stuck. Now, we can't drag them out of that cage. They have to choose. They have to choose by faith to come out of that cage, but it's the gospel that sets them free. It's the gospel that opens the door. And it's the gospel message that is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This is how we defeat the enemy. This is how we defeat the adversary, preaching the gospel. But it's by striving together that we are to go out and preach the gospel. Jesus had his congregation and when he sent them out, he sent them out two by two, striving together, preaching the gospel. At the same time, it's important for us to realize that we're not only to strive together to preach the gospel, but we're also to, uh, we should also be striving together as we serve the Lord here within our fellowship of faith. And I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 5. It's verse 13 where he declares this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... There's our liberty again. But then he says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. According to Paul, Christians have been called to use our liberty as an opportunity to serve one another. We've been set free from the snare of Satan. We've been set free from the condemnation of the law. And now we are to take that liberty and use it to serve one another. Simply put, committed Christians are not only committed to fighting the good fight of faith as we go out and preach the gospel, but we're also committed to serving our Savior as we fervently strive together with one mind here within our fellowship of faith. Now, to further make my case, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presented in the letter that he sent to his own kinsmen. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and more specifically, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Hebrews, well, I just want to take a moment to consider some stats from a Barna survey which was just conducted last year. According to that study conducted in, uh, last year, one in four, that's about 25% of those who fall into the category of millennials. One in four of millennials in the church fit into the category that Barna calls hoppers. They're hoppers. In other words, they're church hoppers. They've been attending multiple churches you know, for you know, quite some time now rather than committing themselves to a single congregation. Church hoppers, that's, you know, I mean, when you consider, you know, how many one in four of church-going millennials, that's a, that's a huge number. Another study from 2020 revealed that 27% of practicing Christians, adults, all adults, 
27% of adults who are churchgoers are occasionally attending other churches. And, and it's sad that this trend of being a church hopper is oftentimes based on a, on a consumeristic mentality which stems from a self-centered view of church. And now I'm not talking about someone who you know, was going to a church that went woke and they realized, ah, we better go find a, a real church. And, and so they've, they've gone out church shopping. That's, that's a little bit different from church hopping. This trend of church hopping is based on this consumeristic mentality which stems from this self-centered view of what church is all about. You see, they look at church and think, what am I going to get out of this experience? They go to, they, they, they go to church for the, for the, for, for the fifis. You know, they, they want to feel good. They, they want to go to the place with the rocking band, you know, and it's like a concert on Sunday morning, you know, and, and they want to hear a message that where there's no convictions and it's all encouraging all the time, you know, that just something that, that like, the, like the pastor might tell you that you can live your best life now or something, something stupid like that, you know, just. And it's just all about how they feel and how they felt leaving and, and was it a pep rally and did we feel encouraged and these sorts of things. And, and what's even worse is that those who find themselves in this category of church hoppers, what they're failing to realize is that they are the cause of their own arrested state of spiritual development. Their choice to never settle in at a good Bible teaching church is causing them to suffer from an arrested state of spiritual development. And, the, and one reason why is because spiritual development takes place within the context of we. When we stand together and when we strive together, this is where true growth takes place. Not only that, but listen, the believers who never really land at one church, well, they don't serve either. Because they're never at one church long enough to really, you know, drop some roots into the soil and begin to, you know, become a plant that is bearing fruit within the context of the Christian congregation. And so they've arrested their own spiritual development and they, they never really learned to serve. They never really learned to, uh, you know, serve side by side, striving together. And as a result, what they're also doing is they're failing to benefit from the spiritual gifts of others because they're not really you know, building any real relationships and they're robbing others of the spiritual gifts that they've been given. Every Christian has received spiritual gifts and yet the Christian who just hops from church to church to church and never really plugs in, well, they're just you know, keeping their spiritual gifts to themselves. And that's not God's design. It's God's design for us to fit in and, and connect with one Christian community, the one that he calls us to. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he's raised up sub-shepherds to oversee the flocks that he puts together. Now imagine for a moment that you are a sheep, literally a sheep, in the pasture of a shepherd that a chief shepherd has placed you into. And you decide, you know, the hay's better at that flock over there. The water's better at that pasture over there. And, and, and you know, I, I, I like one of the sheep that's at this other pasture. And so you as the sheep go to your shepherd and say, you know, I like it here all right. 
but, uh, but I also like these other pastures. And so I'm just going to kind of make my way every Sunday, you know, to these different pastures. And what shepherd is going to be like, oh, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. No, the, the, the shepherd is going to protect that sheep from that bad decision because he doesn't want to scrape that sheep off the road, you know, when it, when it wanders off on its own. Be careful with this idea that church hopping is a good thing, you know, because, well, this church has that thing and that church has the other thing. And it's not the, it's not the design of the Lord. And, and to prove my point, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in Hebrews chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 23, here Paul declares, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another. Now, who are the one another's that he's talking about here? The Christians in this fellowship. Not the Christians in another fellowship, though this letter would apply to those Christians as well. But the implication of the one another here is that there's actually a community of people who actually know each other. Christians who are actually growing together. He says, let us consider one another. Where? In our church. Why? In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Together. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. To to sum all this up simply, Paul was encouraging every believer to establish committed connections with other Christians within their fellowship of faith. And in this way, you know, we are committed to one another so that we can strive together for the sake of our Savior. Paul would call us today to strive fervently for the faith by working together to stir up love and good works. And as we continue to exhort one another here within our own assembly, well, we end up helping one another to become committed Christians who are ready to fight the good fight of faith. When we consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, we start thinking, hey, where's, where's this Christian? Where's that Christian? Where have they been? Let's reach out and connect with them. Let's stir them up, get them back plugged in, striving together. This is the sort of commitment that we need so that we can continue to grow and develop into the disciples that the Lord wants us to become. Now, this brings us to our third and final point because, listen, committed Christians will not only stand firmly as we conduct ourselves in a way that honors our king, and committed Christians will not only strive fervently as we serve our Savior side by side, but committed Christians will also struggle faithfully as we endure persecution. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to endure the pain of persecution and to do this faithfully. If you would look with me again, we'll begin reading at verse 27. Here again, Paul declares, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul 
He's helping his audience to understand that the servants of Satan are trying to silence our faith by filling our hearts with fear. They they want you to put the faith out and fill your heart with fear so that you might just be quiet about Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian is no longer uh, on the losing team. And the enemy realizes that, well, they, they have no more claim to your soul. And so the best thing they can do is just to silence us, to stop us from actually reaching other unbelievers. And one way that they go about doing this is trying to fill our hearts with fear. The adversary will try to intimidate us with threats of persecution. And all of this so that we might stay home and stay silent about our love for the Lord Jesus. And with that being the case, you know, it's, it's important for us to realize that the fervent faith of the church that stands and strives together is simultaneously sending a message to the enemy and to those who oppose the ministry of our Messiah. When we stand and strive together and speak out and present the gospel and go out and accomplish the Great Commission, it lets the enemy know, we're not afraid of you. We're not worried about you, nor should we be. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 28, they put it like this. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. Christian, listen, there's no reason for us to be terrified by those who want to silence our faith. And listen, this is true, regardless of whether they try to intimidate us with verbal mockery or even if we find ourselves face-to-face with those who are threatening us with physical violence because in their eyes we're just infidels. Either way, listen, when we find ourselves face-to-face with persecution, we can rejoice in knowing we serve the king of kings. We're not just serving the king. We're serving the king of kings. They're fighting a losing battle. We're already victorious in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there's no reason for us to fear those who only have the power to destroy our bodies. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 10. It's verse 28 where he declares, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. According to the Lord, there's no real reason. You might think you have reason, but there's no real reason for us to fear those who threaten to destroy our bodies. Because listen, all they can do is whatever the Lord allows. That being the case, you know, there's no real reason for us to fear those who threaten to destroy us. And, and there's also no real reason for us to be intimidate, intimidated by those who want to silence our voices whether we're talking about, you know, a boss or a coworker who's telling us that we can't talk about Jesus or a teacher or even a family member that threatens to, you know, just sever the relationship, you know, if we don't stop talking about Jesus. Listen, we, we don't need to fear those who threaten us. And we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord will deliver us from the attacks of the adversary and listen, this is, this is being written by a man who wrote this epistle in prison. Paul wrote this epistle in prison. 
And we have to keep this in mind that, you know, from the perspective of Paul, Paul was assuring his audience that we don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid of those who want to persecute us, though we might be persecuted. See, Paul wasn't saying, you don't have to worry about persecution because you'll never be persecuted. He's saying, you don't have to worry about being persecuted in the midst of the persecution. I want to consider how he puts it here in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me again at verse 29. Here he declares, it has been granted. It has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. From this, we can see that those who enjoy all the privileges that come along with our Christian faith, and that's, that's what that word granted speaks of. It speaks of privilege. He's saying you have the privilege on behalf of Christ to believe in him. And there are many privileges that come along with that belief, right? But he says it's your privilege to believe in Jesus, and it's your privilege to suffer for his sake. Wait, what? Listen, we live in a day and an age when there's a lot of talk about privilege. And for the Christian, it's our privilege to suffer for the sake of our Savior. And Paul elaborates on this in verse 30 by talking about the conflict. The conflict that he was enduring during the days of his apostolic ministry. That word conflict, which is found in verse 30, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of any struggle. That includes danger, annoyances, obstacles, and hindrances which stand in the way of faith, holiness, and a desire to spread the gospel. Do you realize, I'm sure you do, that there are dangers, annoyances, obstacles, and hindrances that stand in the way of our developing faith, our holiness in the Lord, and the desire to go out and spread the gospel. And all of this is summed up in the word conflict. And there's a lot of Christians in the church today who just want to avoid conflict. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to talk about Jesus at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or anywhere else because they just don't like conflict. Well, who likes conflict? You know, except sociopaths. Who enjoys conflict? I don't enjoy conflict. I'm guessing most of you don't enjoy conflict. There may be a few of us here that love drama, but, but for the most part, listen, nobody wants to be in the middle of conflict. And so there are many Christians, many Christians who do their best to avoid conflict by just not talking about Jesus because they don't want to suffer. They don't want to deal with the arguments. They don't want to deal with the debates. And yet Paul was a man who was in constant conflict because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And he talks here in, in the text today about the conflict that they saw him in the middle of, which was his Roman imprisonment, but also all the conflict that he experienced in the past. And I've gone over the list many times. I'll go over it many more times. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us that he's suffered in many ways, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things. What are the other things? I have no idea. But there are other things that he's dealing with. He later calls, talks about his own infirmities. Besides all those things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul was no stranger to suffering. And while some of his suffering was associated with all the dangers of traveling in that day and age, you know, the, the lion's share of his sufferings was caused by those who were trying to stop the gospel of grace. And we must not forget that the Lord allowed Paul to suffer these difficulties. Our sovereign Savior could have stopped it all and said, nope, we're not going to allow Paul to. The Lord told him at his conversion how many things he would suffer for the sake of the gospel of grace. And it's important to understand that the Lord allowed Paul to suffer all of these difficulties so that the people in the primitive church might learn how to become faithful believers even in the midst of the struggles. This was precisely the point that Paul was making here in Philippians chapter 1. I want to I back up and, and uh, consider once again uh, verses that we've already studied. It's back in Philippians 1, beginning at verse 12. There Paul declares, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, all the things that we just talked about, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul remained faithful in the midst of his suffering so that he could help others to become Christians who were also committed to the great commission of Christ Jesus. And not only that, but his commitment to Christ also helps us to see that the committed Christian isn't a fair-weathered follower. Oh, there's many fair-weathered followers in the church. What's that? It's raining? I guess we're not going to church today. What's that? Talking about Jesus is, is going to cause conflict? Well, I guess I'm going to keep my mouth closed. Wouldn't want conflict. We don't need a church that's filled with fair-weathered followers. We need committed Christians who are ready to suffer for the sake of our Savior. And so we've been called to stand firm in the faith, to strive together in the faith, all the while realizing that we've been granted the privilege of suffering for the sake of our Savior. And to, and, and to further make my case, I want to consider the privilege that we're talking about in light of something that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. If you will, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 15. And as you make your way to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul here is calling it a privilege. 
we've been granted the privilege of suffering for the sake of our Savior. And, and listen, as I pointed out earlier, the, the acquisition of certain privileges has become a point of contention here in the 21st century because you know, these people think those people are privileged and those people think those people are pri- pri- privileged. And you know, it's all about, you know, do you got the white privilege or do you got the, the woke privilege? or do, What kind of privilege do you got? And now we're all upset, you know, because some people we think get more privileges than other people. And maybe it's even true. But who's fighting for the privilege of suffering for our Savior Jesus Christ? Nobody. You want to talk about privilege? We're privileged to suffer for our Savior Jesus Christ, and yet most Christians wouldn't call it a privilege. But the committed Christian realizes that it is, in fact, a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for the sake of our Savior. I want to consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 15. Look with me there at verse 18. Here Jesus declares, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. From this, we can see that those who are suffering for the sake of our Savior, listen, we find ourselves in good company, don't we? We find ourselves in the company of our Savior, Jesus. Listen, if the world loves you and you fit right in with unbelievers, what does that say about you? What does that say about your walk? If, if you fit right in with, the, with this world and the world loves you, Jesus says, well, you're of the world then. But when the world hates you for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, you're in good company, and that's a privilege. When the world persecutes us for our faith in Jesus Christ, count it as a privilege to know that we are in the company of Christ Jesus. Rather than trying to avoid the conflict that occurs when we take a stand for our Savior here in this fallen world, let's become those committed Christians who embrace the privilege of persecution. And at the same time, it's, it's also nice to know that we're going to be rewarded as well. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 5, it's beginning in verse 10. There the Lord Jesus declares, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Simply put, the Christian who faithfully suffers for the sake of our Savior, we will enjoy the everlasting rewards of heavenly riches, and not just for a little while, but for the rest of eternity. Think about that for a moment. The suffering that we endure here in this world has an exchange rate that is so incredible that you can't even calculate it. When we put things into a proper perspective, the light afflictions that we might suffer temporarily here in this world 
ends up producing a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, which will be enjoyed forever and ever. We can't even begin to calculate the rewards that we receive for the persecution that we endure here in this world. That being the case, it only makes sense. It's only rational for us to become those committed Christians who see the privilege in suffering knowing that we are going to receive eternal rewards in the presence of our Savior. As we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to present you with the same question that I posed back at the beginning of this study. The question is this. Are we truly committed Christians or have we become those believers who are just too busy for Jesus? With this question in mind, I want to remind you that committed Christians stand firmly in the faith as we conduct ourselves in a way that honors our King. Committed Christians strive fervently as we continue serving our Savior side by side with other believers here in our fellowship of faith. And finally, committed Christians struggle faithfully as we endure the pain of persecution, knowing that we will be rewarded for the way we endured persecution. In light of these things, listen, I have no doubt that we all falter. We all fail from time to time. It's a tall order to maintain our commitment to Christ because there are so many pressures and and, and so many obstacles and so many temptations here in this world. And with that, I remind you, Christian, that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So I'm not up here trying to condemn anybody for falling and faltering in their commitment to Christ. And yet it's important for us to remember that our commitment to Christ is more important than any other commitment here on this planet. Our commitment to Christ is more important than any other commitment that we've made. Our commitment to Christ is more important than our career track. Our commitment to Christ is more important than our five-year plan or, or, or you know, the, the path that we've chosen through college. Or, or, or our commitment to Christ is more important than the hobbies that we enjoy or the sports that we love to watch. And, and as, as hard as it is to hear, our commitment to Christ is more important than our commitment to our family and our friends. That's right. Our commitment to Christ is more important than the commitment that we have to our family and our friends. And the reason I say this is because, listen, our commitment to Christ is the basis for maintaining right relationships in every other arena of life. If you fail to keep Christ first in your life, then all of your other relationships, well, you're going to fail to keep those commitments too. We need to make Christ primary. And we need to make our commitment to Christ paramount in order to maintain right relationships with everyone else. If you want to make sure that your life is in line with the will of the Lord, then we must begin by making sure that our connection with Christ Jesus is first and foremost. With this as the goal, I encourage you in closing, let's make sure that we are becoming those believers who are completely committed to Christ Jesus. And in this way, we become 
committed Christians. Let's pray.